Good morning. It is indeed a pleasure to be here. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Now, this is the last of my series majoring on the minors. This is the last of the minor prophets that I will be dealing with. I could go through and give you all the details, but hey, that's what we've got a website for. Have a look and uh, you'll see they're listed. I believe this will be the 11th, perhaps 10th, um, the, of the minor prophets that I'll be dealing with. The only two, as I've said before, that I will not be dealing with, with number one, Daniel, because our pastor did a marvellous presentation on Daniel. And the other one is Jonah, because everybody does Jonah. Uh, so this will be the last for the other minor prophets. Remember, they're only minor because they're short. Uh, can I say that these days, or is that being heightest or something? You know, I can't say they're short. Um, vertically, no, not vertically challenged, just short in length. In fact, they were, they were bundled together um, by the Hebrew writers, literally in many times into one scroll. Okay, so there would be the book of the minor prophets. Uh, all right, so we're looking at Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a guy. He really does get a get a missed out a lot because when you when everybody says, oh, you know, name a Bible book beginning with Z, they go, oh, Zechariah, Zephaniah misses. Uh, but he's a fascinating and interesting guy and a, a great little book. Only three chapters, not much. You know, you want to read a, a whole book, three chapters. It's, it's very easy to get through, very logically set out and a, and a great little piece. So... Everybody should have found it. I gave you plenty of time because most of you have probably never looked up the book of Zephaniah before. So I gave you plenty of time to find it. And we'll be looking at that after we have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious book. We thank you for the word of God that is revealed to us. We thank you for the life and the work of the prophet Zephaniah, what he taught us, what he tells us. And Lord, what it means to us. We thank you for it and for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. You know, sometimes they, they say, uh, you know, uh, how do you know when and what happened and who someone was? Zephaniah is real easy because it said, The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gilad, Gedediah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we know a who and we know a when. So, he prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah reigned from 640 to 609 BC. Now, Josiah is an interesting guy because he was in many ways one of the last good guys the last good kings of, of Judah. Uh, and his reign is broken into two sections, really. Because, and you can 
Well, let's go and read about King Josiah. Josiah, let's have a look in Second Chronicles chapter 34. Second Chronicles 34, and we'll pick it up at verse. Uh, we'll do the whole, the yeah. We'll start at verse one. Second Chronicles 34, one. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Hey, he's one of the goodies. This is a good guy. Now, but he was eight years old when he started. That's young. For in the eighth year of his reign, eighth year of his reign, so eight and eight, at 16. He's 16 years old. While he was yet young, there you go, you're 16, you're still young. He began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, so that's four years later, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and from the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images which were on high above them. He cut them down, the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He break them in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. Which means he killed the people who sacrificed unto them and then threw the remnants of the idols on top of their graves. He burnt the bones of the priests upon the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even about Naphtali with their mattocks all around. And, and when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten down the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout the, all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now we find, and we won't continue to read, but... It's important to realize that in a few chapters, uh, we'll just mention it here, um, down at uh, verse 14, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given to Moses. That is probably the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? So what's happened and, and we have to understand something about this. People tend to date uh, Josiah's reforms from when he found the book, of, when the book of the law was found. But it's quite clear here, he started to reform Jerusalem and Judea earlier, quite a bit earlier. Now, if this was before the book of the law had been found, why was he doing it? What prompted it? And I believe it may well be the preaching of people like Zephaniah. That Zephaniah was probably one of the reasons why Josiah said, the king said, we're going to have to get things right with God and we're going to have to get rid of these idols. Because in fact, the very things that that Zephaniah talks about the things that are wrong are the very reforms that Josiah carried out. Ah, oh, so, you know, 
we, we sometimes we have a think about the prophets, you know, they prophesy, they preach, they stand, they do all this stuff, and no one listens. Well, this time someone listened. The king listened. And there was a change in the whole nation. And, and this was, I believe, partly because of the preaching of Zephaniah. So we know that he would have been preaching earlier than 621 BC. Okay, so we've got this guy's dates pretty well fixed. It's not some, oh, airy-fairy, oh, maybe, you know, this, maybe that. No, we know when he preached. We know what he preached because it was written down. We know why he preached. The other interesting thing about him that we find in this first verse is his genealogy. Now, normally you get given, you know, they'd say your name and then your dad's name. So, you know, I would be known as Alan, son of Trevor. You know, that's, that's the way it was done. But you have a look here. He's listed as Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedidiah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Goes back four generations. That's a little bit unusual. Unless, unless, he says, that name, Hezekiah? Ah, oh, does that mean they mean King Hezekiah? That's spelt differently, but spelling was pretty variable in those days. I think it might be that this guy was... See, it, it's not listed that he's a priest. It's not listed that he was one of the sons of the prophets. Was this guy, in fact, a prophet called from out of the royal family? Uh, he was a member of the nobility, the aristocracy. And he became a preacher of righteousness. So... That would make sense why they would record his genealogy back to one particular guy who was more significant than anyone else, that it was a king. So we have who he was and when he was. But what did he preach about? Well, we'll get into that, but it's pretty simple. He was a prophet of judgment, a prophet of judgment he is going to preach and teach about the the judgment of the day of the lord and there was a judgment coming to israel and the judgment would be the invasion of the babylonians under nebuchadnezzar but what he's talking about here is far more than that because what he's looking forward to is not just the, the coming of the Babylonians, but the great and terrible day of the Lord at the end of the age. That's what he's talking about. And, he's, and really what he's saying is, what will happen to you later with the Babylonians is just a foretaste, just a touch of what's going to happen at the end of the age. So we're going to have a look at what does Zephaniah teach us <coughs> about the judgment of God. First of all, in chapter 1, he teaches us 
that the judgment of God is thorough. It is thorough. Have a look at verse 2. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast, the fowls of the heaven, the fishes of the sea, the stumbling blocks of the wicked. I will cut off man from off the land, uh, saith the Lord. I will stretch out my hand upon Jerusalem and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay. All. Now, what does all mean? Well, it's really quite simple. As I was taught very early, all means all. And that's all that all means. Right? All means... So he's saying, I will consume all things off the land. Now, this didn't happen with the Babylonians. In fact, it's recorded very clearly that the Babylonians deliberately left some of the worthless and poor and miserable people to, you know, look after the farms and keep the place running while they just collected the taxes and deported most of the nobility, the gentry and the educated. So they didn't consume all things off the land. So clearly he is talking about a future judgment that will be happening in Israel. Now, we look down. And it says in verse 7, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. That's one of the first times you find that word mentioned. The day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. That's a little bit of a strange thing. He hath bid his guests to a sacrifice. Okay, there was. Now, you, 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 most of you have got sort of a mental picture of you know, sacrifice. Altar, wood, sacrifice, light the wood, burn the sacrifice. Pretty, you know, it, it's not that tough. It's sort of not, as they say, as they say it's not rocket surgery. It's, it's you know, fairly simple. But there was one sacrifice... And if you want to have a look at it, it's in Leviticus chapter 7. <coughs> the peace offering or the thanksgiving offering where the sacrifice was just bits of it were burnt and the rest of it was cooked and eaten. And you had two days because they said you can eat it the first day, you can eat the second day, but if any's left over on the third day, you just got to burn it and get rid of it. That's good health procedure too. You know, good health and safety for the, the food preparation. So what would you do? Well, why you would be having this sort of sacrifice would be if God had blessed you. If something had happened that you were really thankful for, maybe a good harvest, maybe a, a recovery from illness, maybe the birth of a child, a long-awaited child or something like that, you would take an animal and sacrifice it. So let's say you took yourself something like a, oh no, a nice two or three year old bullock. How much of that are you going to get through in two days? Not a lot. So you would invite the family 
and say, come and celebrate with me. Oh, okay. And after the first day, if there was, and there'd still be a lot left over, what, what were you supposed to do? You were supposed to go out to the poor and the widow and the orphan, the people who couldn't afford a good feast, and say, come and feast with us. Okay? So you would bid your guests to the sacrifice. And the idea being that at the end of that, they would say, bless God for providing this, and God bless you too for giving it to us. So it was a time of, of great celebration. So that is the concept of preparing a sacrifice and inviting guests. All right, we've got, got their mind around that. But God is going to invite some very different guests to a sacrifice. He's going to invite some very strange guests to a meal. Turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. These are some very strange guests. Revelation, chapter 19, verse 17. Revelation nineteen seventeen, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and them that sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, that which... He deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake burning with brimstone. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Strange guests at a strange feast and a mention of darkness a day of darkness, gloominess, clouds of thick darkness. Why? Well, God is going to give you what you want, whether you like it or not. It's a day of darkness. So we've looked at this and we've said it's a day of darkness. There's no light. It's a day of sorrow. It's a day that's thorough. But, you know, it's also a day that is avoidable. Chapter 2. Gather yourselves together, ye, yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness, that ye, it may be ye shall be hid in the day 
of the Lord's anger. The day of the Lord is thorough, but the day of the, the judgment of God is thorough, <coughs> but the day of the of God's judgment is avoidable. It's avoidable. You don't have to go through it. It says before. Four times he says, before this happens, seek him. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. Again, back in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we find that the, the rich and the powerful and the mighty men of the earth say to the, the rocks and the, the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of God. Before it's too late. Seek ye this before it happens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Now is the accepted hour. Now is the day of salvation. Before all this happens, now is the time to seek God. You don't wait till it happens and then? No, it's too late. I think of all the words in the English language, the saddest ones are too late. That's the saddest, they are the saddest words. Too late. Should have done it earlier. Should have done it before. You know, they, they, there's ads they have on TV, right? And they have these ads for cancer screening, right? And they say, don't put it off. Don't put it in the drawer. Don't put it you know, away, use the test. And I can tell you, it works because I'm alive because I took the test. I had no symptoms. But before the symptoms showed up, I took the test and got treatment. And God is saying, before this shows up, do what's right. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek mercy. It's interesting, you know, I, I remember hearing about a, a pair of preachers, an old preacher and a young preacher, who were praying in the in the church together and and the uh, the the young preacher began to wail and, and, and weep at the injustice in the world and he began to call on God to bring justice and and righteous judgment upon the world. And and uh, the old preacher after a little while he got up and he walked down to the other end of the church and knelt down and said, thank you, Lord, for not bringing justice and judgment while I was standing next to him. You see, we don't want to pray for justice and judgment. We need to pray for mercy and meekness and righteousness. I don't want God's judgment. I don't want God's justice. I really don't. I want his mercy. So, we found that the judgment of God is thorough. We found that the judgment of God is avoidable. The judgment of God is far-reaching. It's far-reaching. In the next section of chapter 2, we find in verse seven to, or 4 to 7, 
it says that Gaza shall be shaped, shall be forsaken, Ashkelon a desolation. Okay, it speaks about the inhabitants of the seacoast and the Philistines, Philistines. If you go to Jerusalem, that is to the west of Jerusalem. Okay, now think of yourself. You're sitting on standing in the middle of Jerusalem. That's to the west. Okay. In verse 8, it says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon. Moab and Ammon, they're to the east of Jerusalem. Now, you, you know, you sort of know what's going to come next. Yep. Because it says in verse 12 ye ethiopians also ethiopia is where it is south of jerusalem anything left yeah it says now in, in verse 13 and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy assyria and will make nineveh a desolation Anyone like to guess where Assyria and Nineveh are from Jerusalem? North? Yeah. Each of these places, when you stand in Jerusalem, every direction <coughs> from the north, the south, the east and the west, God's judgment will reach. Judge God's judgment cannot be bought with silver and bought off with silver and gold. We found in chapter one, you cannot run from it in chapter two. You cannot flee from the judgment of God. There's an old saying, you know, they say it about, about a boxing ring. You can run, but you can't hide. You can run from the judgment of God, but you cannot hide from it. From the north, the south, the east, and the west, God will judge. Now, the important thing to realize is, and we get into chapter 3 here, we've said that God's judgment is thorough. God's judgment is avoidable. God's judgment is far-reaching. But the point we have to realize in, in chapter 3 is God's judgment is deserved. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. You know what we're saying here? God told them. God warned them. God has warned mankind that judgment is coming and they will not listen. So why is this judgment so deserved? Well, have a look. There's, there's four groups of people mentioned here in, in chapter 3. It says, Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. 
Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Every segment of society was corrupted. The princes, the rich, the powerful, they destroyed instead of protecting. The judges, the legal system, it devours instead of delivering. The prophets, they preach without honor. They're light and treacherous instead of being serious and reliable. The priests, the learned ones, they violate the own teaching of their own laws. And God said, there is no remedy for that but judgment. And you say, well, yeah, those people in, in Israel, yeah, they were, they were pretty bad. They deserved all that. Go and have a good look at our society today. The rich and the powerful, both, both financial and political, they destroy those that they should be protecting. The legal system, ugh, it devours, devours. You know, you go and try and get a judgment and the first thing they say is, how much money have you got? Because this is going to cost. It's, it, and then the preachers, the preachers who are supposed to be the honourable, supposed to be the ones who stand up with moral authority, are totally without moral standard. And yes, you know who I'm talking about. They have just completely defiled themselves. The priests, the learned ones, the ones who are educated, what have they done? They violate their own teaching. Their own teaching. You say, what, they, they violate their own teaching? Yeah, because they'll tell you, you can be anything you want to be and believe anything you want except be a Christian and believe the Bible. Right? They violate their own teaching. And worst of all, they have no shame about it. In And I said... This is God speaking in verse 7. He said, Surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever I punish them. So God's saying, Look, I, 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 I thought, well, these, this world, maybe if I bring a little judgment on them, they will then start to realize and understand that what they're doing is wrong. And what did they do? They rose up early and corrupted all their doings. Have a look back through history. What has happened to the people who have defied God and his laws and his way of doing things? Those empires are all gone. 
Do you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something, and it's just a, a fascinating thing. If you ever do any history, do you know how to trace the rise of empires through Europe? You know how to trace them? <coughs> Look for the empires that gave refuge to Jewish people and allowed the free publication of the gospel. They're the empires that start to rise. Do you know when you can trace the, when you can pinpoint the decline of the Spanish empire? It was the edict that drove the Jews out of Spain and brought in the Spanish Inquisition. From that day on, Spain began to decline. And England, who at that time said, okay, come here, began to rise. But no, they look at history and refuse to accept that God blesses those who bless his people. The judgment of God is deserved. They looked at the example of God's judgment and just went ahead and did more. Fifthly, the judgment of God, we've said, okay, is thorough. The judgment of God is avoidable. The judgment of God is far-reaching. The judgment of God is deserved. The judgment of God is purifying. Purifying. For in the next section, starting at verse 8, we have that God purifies by it. Verse 9, it says, For then will I turn to the people of a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one consent. God's judgment is aimed to purify his land and his, his people. It's not aimed. We think of it just being punishment. No, it's purification is aimed at. God wants to reveal those who will turn to him and to remove the rest. You think about it when you, it's interesting, you know, I went to uh, Sovereign Hill. You know they do a gold pour at Sovereign Hill? If you, ever, if you haven't been there, it's worth going to watch. They heat up the gold in a, in a, furnace and they pour it out into a crucible and you can see any slag or anything on top of the gold being purified see it's not to punish the impurity it's to remove it from the precious metal God's judgment is purifying it is to remove from his people those things which corrupt and do destroy them. For it says, I will take away out of, in verse 11, I will take away out of the midst of them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. God will purify his people by removing with judgment. Finally, God's judgment is to his praise. 
to his praise? Yeah. Why does God judge? Think of it. Why does God judge? Well, yeah, there are people who've done the wrong thing and they need to be, you know, there's a punishment, yeah. But God's judgment, like everything else he does, is to his own glory. And it is that the praise of his people might be found. Verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he has cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee, and thou shalt not see evil any more. Glorious time coming. Glorious time when God's judgment has been brought upon those who would corrupt and destroy his people. But there's something very fascinating here. Verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Yeah, no argument there. He will save. True, call upon the Lord and he will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Singing? Does God sing? It looks like it here. Have you ever thought of God singing? Now that's that's something, you know. You you don't as I say you don't see that every day. God singing. Who sings? You know, we we read in that passage that when the world was created, the morning stars sang together for joy. That may or may not be a reference to angels. I'm not a hundred percent certain on that one. But if that if that's if you take away that one, you know there's no record of angels singing. When Jesus was born, the angels didn't sing. They said. Right? They, it, it, there's no record that they sang. They said glory to God in the highest. Who sings? In Scripture, there are only two things that we know sing. Us and God. For we know that in the new Jerusalem we will sing a new song. It's even got the words written for you, in case you want to you know, get practice early. But God sings. Has anybody ever sung over you? Has anybody ever sung to you? Yeah. You know who sings? Parents over their children. That's who sings. A parent sings over their children. I can remember, I can remember when, when my children were very, very small. And I can remember, and you do this, you know. You, you, parents, you know what this one is, don't you? Right? You're there. And you're singing. 
you're singing to the child. And the child, even if it's not asleep, is totally relaxed. I can remember singing uh, to, to my daughter especially, because she was very, my eldest daughter, very, very fussy child. Very fussy. Right? Sing Karabarawinakana. It's not even English. It's actually an Aboriginal song from South Australia. Karabarawinakana, yeah. little star above the lake. Now, she, she didn't even know English, let alone some Aboriginal dialect. But you know what she did know? Her dad's voice. God will rejoice over us with singing as a parent sings to a child. When those who have been spared from his judgment are brought into his presence. The judgment of God. Do you want to face it? I don't. I fully intend that I will never face the judgment of God. Why? Because I have done what is called for in chapter 2. I have sought the Lord. I have sought his righteousness. I have sought his meekness. And he has promised me that I will never, ever, ever face his judgment. Never. You know, that gives you a bit of confidence. Whatever happens, however bad things get, and in fact, however often I screw up, God has promised me I will never face his judgment. Do you want to? If you do, I cannot think of one reason why you would ever want to face the purifying, far-reaching, thorough and justly deserved judgment of God. He calls on you. Hide yourself from the judgment of God to come. Hide yourself in the rock which was cleft. Hide yourself from what is coming. Incidentally, the name Zephaniah, do you know what it means? Jehovah hides. Yeah. His very name meant Hide yourself from the judgment to come. Will you hide? Will you flee to the rock which is higher than us? Will you take advantage of the promise that those who turn to him will never face his judgment? Or will you be left to face the awful and terrible judgment of an angry God? is a thing to be avoided at all costs. So this day, if you don't know if you're saved or not, if, you don't, if you're not sure that you're safe from the judgment of God, you talk to somebody, you see somebody, and you find that place where you can be safe from his judgment. Thank you.